Hi, film lovers, and welcome to the March edition of Cinetopia, Edinburgh's favourite film podcast show. I'm Paul, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Scotland's largest dedicated short film event. And we're back here at EHFM at Summer Hall, and we've been busy this month watching films, planning films and film events, as well as travelling. And if you're a filmmaker, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival is currently still open for submissions, and we have a lot planned for 2019, so watch that space. So Amanda here, she just took a trip across the pond over to sunny Florida. How was it, Amanda? Oh, well, it was sunny and really warm, and I got to spend some time at the beach at Disney with a couple golden retrievers, too, so it was quite, quite a fun time. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, did you see any Flor- Floridian films? Uh, I did not, um, but I did watch a few films on the plane, which I think we'll we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> a bit later, okay. And Annie, you took a trip to Glencoe, so what were you doing there? Business or pleasure? Well, just definitely not business. Uh, Amanda was in Florida, and Luca from Cinetopia was in New York, and the only thing I can afford is to go to Glencoe, Glencoe with the bus. in March. <laughs> I know, yeah. Well, it was it was pretty. There was snow and, and stuff yeah. like that, so yeah. <laughs> Lovely place. Um, okay, Jim, tell us what's been happening with Take One Magazine. Um, so it's still recovering from the Glasgow Film Festival, quite frankly. It had about three dozen articles or something, but there's lots of interesting stuff going on, which we're actually going to talk about during the show, I think, uh, independence and things like that. So lots of interesting stuff happening. Keeping busy. Glad to hear it. Okay, so Cinetopia had its monthly networking event just last week. We were all there at uh, uh, Brewdog in Lothian Road for all the fun and games, and quite a good tournament, I think. Uh, Cinetopia Networking is a great way to get film people together to meet up, um, so we all very much enjoyed it and recommend it. Uh, we also had a raffle, uh, which uh, we are going to shortly announce the winner for. Raffle prize was a Cinetopia goodie bag full of exotic and uh, delicious goodies from faraway places. What was actually in the goodie bag? Um, milk duds, uh, junior mints, and uh, the famous uh, Jiffy Pop. Wow. Came over from uh, America. Great. Milk duds and junior mints. So whatever they are, <laughs> uh, whatever they are. Exactly my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever they are, someone is going to win them. And I think it's time now to announce the lucky winner. Annie, who's won this month's raffle? Yes, yeah, so I'm ready here with a bag full of uh, business cards. I just need someone to be the lucky, lucky lady okay, I'll do it. <laughs> to pick it up. So let's see who wins. Wow. And the winner be... is... Heather Brown. Heather Brown wins the goodie bag of well done, whatever that is. Enjoy your winnings. <laughs> so in this episode, we'll be reviewing a few films as usual, including mid-90s Jonah Hill's first foray into directing and the sister, Sisters Brothers, a French director's take on a Western. Jim's going to give us his thoughts on Under the Silver Lake, a new film by David Robert Mitchell that's currently out in selected theatres, but also streaming on Mubi. Amanda sat down with Jim Dunnigan, chair of the Edinburgh Film Guild at the Film House, to talk about its 90th anniversary this year. And Jim sat down with Nina Schildhauer, director of the Independence Film Festival, which will be opening in Edinburgh on the 4th of April. All that and a chat about all this Netflix drama. So now it's time for our review of Mid-90s, as promised. And Jim, uh, let's have your take on it. Uh, right, so the, the main headline with this one is it's uh, directed by Jonah Hill, um, who we all know from you know various films, some farce comedies, some more prestige dramas. But it's his directorial debut. Um, it's set in the sort of early mid nineties uh, in America, and it follows a, a young boy, Stevie, who I, I think is broadly meant to be kind of you know a, a vessel for. Uh, Jonah Hill's own kind of experiences growing up on the west coast of America at that time 
Uh, and it's very set up for that aesthetic. It's shot in uh, 4 to 3 ratio. It's got a lot of um, elements that evoke a sense of time and place. But basically, we follow um, this kid, Stevie, as he kind of navigates his home life, which is not great. It's not necessarily terrible, but, you know, he gets beaten up by his brother. Uh, his mother's not necessarily the most uh, attentive. And he tries to get in and make friends with uh, a group of kids who are skaters. You know, they all have skateboards. They hang out at a skateboard shop. So he tries to get in with them and... He gets into some scrapes, basically, and it kind of follows how he navigates those relationships. And it, it's basically a coming-of-age story. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the mid-90s, and uh, I remember the long hair and the baggy khaki pants and stuff. So it definitely like was one of those movies that um, I think I read somewhere where it was a little bit of a time capsule. And I think it seemed like perhaps that young main character was Jonah Hill I, I gathered that as well he said that this nostalgic for growing up in that way and and the the massive amounts of um you know hanging around smoking weed and stuff like that seemed to be but you know I, I it was it was a good film it but it was um you know it didn't it didn't I, I, I didn't love it you know um but anyway what, what do you think Annie well I didn't love it either I didn't love it either it was um it wasn't bad it was entertaining and it was kind of mellow and good it just failed to kind of say anything or say anything to me precisely at least uh, I like the aesthetic I think it was pretty true to life although I was a bit younger I'm a bit younger than, than Jonah Hill is but I still kind of lived through that skateboarding time of my life although I was never that cool <laughs> um, but yeah it, it just kind of failed to say anything and it felt a bit stupid and I have to say I missed the last 30 minutes of it and I hear that was the worst part of the film so I'm kind of glad I I didn't see it, but up until that, it, it was okay, yeah? I think it sets out to do what it wants to quite well. Um, one thing I will say is that conveying a sense of time and place can be quite... It can be quite a difficult thing to do. Uh, I mean, especially when you're looking at it from a contemporary vantage point. And there's an attention to detail in the film which I think does it very well. You know, um you know the characters are wearing Street Fighter Two T-shirts, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of '90s hip hop on the soundtrack, right? Because that's what the kids in the film listen to, and all the rest. And I'll talk more about the soundtrack in a minute. But there's that. But even just within the scene itself, you know, there's a restaurant scene where they're playing Kiss from a Rose on the restaurant radio and things like that. So it conveys the sense of time and place very well. There are some issues with it. I mean, broadly, it is very well done, but I'm going to actually take up the baton from Annie on the it, it was a bit stupid point, right? Because <laughs> there were points where, I don't think I agree on the film as a whole, but there were points where it just it's just that little bit too self-indulgent, right? So you, you get quite a lot of scenes of the kids talking amongst themselves. And, it, and it's good. It gives it a real kind of honesty and an authenticity, but it just goes on that little bit too long, right? I don't know about any of you, but I remember some of the conversations I had with people when I was a teenager, right? And I said some dumbass nonsense, right? And I wouldn't want to listen back to myself saying it now. Well, by the same token, I don't really need to sit for 15 minutes listening to Jonah Hill and Cyphers for his friends talking about it either. So it just goes a little bit too far in some scenes like that. Right, and that's maybe why when I fully expected to not 
liked the film, I thought, well, if this is a story about Jonah Hill growing up, I don't really like Jonah Hill as a character. I've seen him on interviews and stuff like that, apart from maybe his roles in Moneyball and Wolf of Wall Street, which I think, you know, he, you know, I just thought, well, that doesn't seem too interesting. But I also think, interestingly enough, it is a hangout movie. And that's kind of a 90s sort of phenomenon. If you think of like the films like Dazed and Confused that came out and the Whit Stillman films, there was a lot about just sitting around with your friends, having a conversation. And, you know, so in in ways that the film genre itself is hearkening back to that time, I think a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it all adds up, and I think that that's probably the, the film's um, biggest strength in that regard. What I will say is the the kid who plays Stevie, uh, the main character of the film, Sonny Suljic, he's really good. Um, I, I think, because the film kind of depends on him, really, but you need to retain that kind of empathy with him and understand what he's trying to do, and I think the script and the acting work together quite well to do that. Um, so whilst it, it never really feels... Basically, what it comes down to is it's painting a very specific portrait, right? And I'm not going to sit here and, you know, I grew up on the east coast of Scotland. It's not one that I can very easily relate to, right? But I think in terms of presenting what it wants to, it's very specific. It is very well done for what it wants to do, largely, I would say. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about the soundtrack? The soundtrack, I think, is a key bit of it and actually more more because it's very easy to talk about the like the actual 90s music in it you know so there's a lot of things like you know the wu-tang clans on there um i think the the one that stuck in my head was 93 to infinity souls of mischief that's on there and it, it does that very well helps to establish the time and place but i think what actually helps the film is also some of the work from uh trent reznor and atticus ross um who have done soundtracks for various things i think probably their best known one would be the social network they did the um the score for that and it's got this really kind of like deep kind of foreboding quality to it and you'd think it would sound a little bit out of place but it actually helps to add a little bit more gravitas to it um you know so it's not just a silly kind of like kid grown up skating movie it does actually give it a little bit of a sense of um grandeur not an undue one i think but it does help to just imbue it with a little bit more drama than i think it otherwise would so the soundtrack on both sides both the the music that they've uh, licensed and also the stuff that they've scored, it works really well, and I think it does elevate the film quite a bit. I agree, and it brings you back into that um, time capsule, as you will, and I love 90s music. Okay, so on the back of talking about the mid-90s, there's been a trend in recent years of big-name actors turned directors. What do we think of this phenomenon? Are actors better at directing than directors who can't act? Are they just using their name? And who's been the most successful actor turned director? I can think of a few examples, from Buster Keaton to Charles Lawton. Uh, Obviously, Orson Welles springs to mind. Uh, What do you guys think? So it's interesting. I, I, it does feel like there's been a lot more um, of this happening, certainly for notable releases anyway. Now, whether that's the case or not, I don't know, because maybe I'm just more aware of it. Because as you pointed out, Paul, I don't, I, the, the concept of you know actors turning to direction isn't a particularly new one, but there does seem to be a lot more of these things uh, popping up. I mean, the one that kind of... A couple that sprung to mind to me recently... I think it's really just how quickly it goes from first feature to kind of prestige filmmaking. Um, you know, Greta Gerwig, I think, is probably a good example. You know, because you had uh, she made a big splash of Lady Bird. She's now doing an adaptation of Little Woman. 
Uh, Jonah Hill we've already spoken about, and I think there's an interesting point to be made in that I, I don't know whether a lot of the elements that came together for that film would have come together if it hadn't been Jonah Hill directing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there there brings a lot of... Um, you know, because you have this big name underneath it and you, you're, you know, um, Americans love especially love their actors they they like you know when you put a poster up you put tom cruise on it and you know and and you know europeans are more into directors so it's you know it's the big name director so i think that probably brought in the right people for him to make this this film in this way like you said because it's a kind of a, a you know a hangout movie mm. it, it, it's a strange one though in that, that, that you get some you you run the whole range of kind of artistic styles with this because We've mentioned a couple already. Another one I can think of is uh, Melanie Laurent. And I think a lot of people, in certainly in the States, but I think also in Britain, still recognize her as an actress. Um, and she's probably best known for playing Shoshana in Inglorious Bastards. But she's made quite a few films now, and her first English language one was at the Glasgow Film Festival. I might have mentioned it at the tail end of the last show. And it's a really... I mean, the, the the film has its issues, but from a directorial standpoint, it's really interesting, it's really well done. And I don't think you would necessarily have got that from her acting work, certainly not that style of filmmaking. But you've, it goes all the way up to the blockbuster stage, actually, because one that also comes to mind is Ben Affleck, um, who, of course, like was Batman, isn't Batman, maybe he's <laughs> going... I, I mean, I don't know, I've kind of lost track of that. But he was meant to be directing a Batman film because he's almost trying to transition more into being seen as just solely a director. Mm. Um, I mean, it might help if he stopped inserting himself and his brother into his own movies if he <laughs> wants to be taken in, in that regard. But it does seem like more seem to be doing it. I don't know if that's a financing thing or just maybe it's easier technically to make a film now so that it, you know if you've got a bit of money and contacts it becomes quite straightforward to make a you know a high production value film maybe that's what's seeing this uptick in it perhaps yeah definitely i think so because once you have someone you know is already in the field it's easier for the funders to also throw money at it but didn't Ben Affleck did the horrible Gigi film, was it called? The first one he did. Gone Baby Gone. No, wasn't it? The very, very, very bad one. Yeah. I'll have to Google that. But anyway, Jonah Hill's... Is, I mean, I'd say Don't... Argo. I didn't like Argo. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, there, was, there was definitely like Gigi or something before that. That was just like trash. But Jonah Hill's first one isn't that bad. Like it's It's gone a bit better maybe. The directors are not allowed to just do any sort of trash. There's kind of this some sort of a, a level to it nowadays that you're not just allowed to go on. Do you think people are more likely to be, you know, if you're an actor and you make your first film, they're more likely to be critical of your film than if it was an unknown director doing it? I, I think you end up with more eyes on it. I, I think purely just because it ends up with uh, a lot more distribution as a result. You know, I mean, like in the States, um, Jonah Hill's film was distributed by A24, you know, so kind of like this indie powerhouse of of filmmaking i find it hard to believe that that's that film would get picked up for that level of distribution and also it didn't get end up getting nominated for anything at the oscars but there was a there was a, an awards campaign for it i mean it was nominated at some other things like the independent spirit awards and and things like that so i don't think it would get the same level of exposure and therefore scrutiny um so i don't know if it's maybe people are more likely to criticize it but certainly there'd be a lot more people seeing it and inevitably, if more people see it, then you're going to get a wider range of uh, things that people are going to say about it. So who do you think has been the most successful actor turned director? Recently or well, ever? 
of all time. Uh, well, I mean, Orson Welles did do pretty well for himself. I mean, <laughs> I'd kind of go along with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at the catalogue of films that he, he's come out with and that, you know, that history is there, I think it's hard to see past that. I think there's a lot... I think what's quite exciting about now in terms of the number of actors turned directors who are floating around is there's a lot of good filmmaking there and it could be quite interesting to see which of those could potentially move on to become in that same i mean maybe not same category let's see but we'll then go on to actually build up a, a big track record of really good filmmaking uh, you know i think orson wells he used his acting background to kind of inform his filmmaking style because of the lighting and the staging that he kind of developed or understood through his theatrical career because he was a stage actor essentially before he moved into movies and that you know that can see that in the lighting in, in some of his early films and so on the staging and and uh, sets and so on things like that i don't think a lot of actors these days are kind of using their acting to inform the directing style i'm not sure i can really see that i think they might i mean one thing i have noticed in so i mean i noticed it in I noticed it in mid nineties. I think I would say I noticed it in Lady Bird as well, um, and some of these other films. I think the modern ones, certainly anyway, that I can think of. I think they're doing quite a good job at getting uh, good, naturalistic and kind of honest feeling performances from their actors. Um, now, me saying that that's a result of them being actors and directors, that could be a bit of confirmation bias on my part, but it is a pattern I've seen in in a few of them. I think that's a common feature in the recent ones anyway. Yeah, I have to take back my word. I Googled it. It wasn't Ben Affleck's direction. He wasn't director for Giggly. He just acted in it, but I'm just blaming him for the entire movie. So <laughs> that's why I think tend to think maybe that he is a director of it. But yeah, Argo was okay. Well, I can't remember what he directed directed before that that was kind of his breakout thing isn't it yeah it, well gone baby gone he did uh and then there was the town and they, they, i mean they were both they were both fine um our, everybody seemed to love argo except me uh I, I wasn't particularly taken with it i actually preferred um gone girl which he made after that um i thought that was a much more interesting film for my money so th- th- he's done very well from a exposure and critical standpoint i'm not gonna lie i'm not i'm not 100 percent sold on his movie making but you know lots of lots of people whose opinions i respect disagree with me so you know it's not as if it's terrible i agree that um greta gerwig is probably one of my favorites of the up-and-coming new directors but i i also really started to like noah Baumbach's films when she started to input herself in the writing so francis ha and and um you know th- those films were really really good so she's been kind of moving up also another one i really love um because i love him as an actor loved him as a director robert redford you know mm. and he really did a, a great career on that and and still is that actually one that I've, i'd totally forgotten about until now actually which in retrospect seems quite obvious is also clint eastwood actually yeah. i mean i mean like some of the, the the stuff he's put out as a director in the past couple of decades is is really quite i mean you know it's had its ups and downs of course but he's had some like really really good films there and of course you know, I think a lot. There'll be a whole generation of people at this point who I don't think really recognise him as you know Dirty Harry and recognise him from any of the you know the the westerns or anything. So, I, I think he's also done very very well in that regard. I think it, it probably depends a little bit on who they worked with during their career as well, because I think like Greta Gerwig is obviously extremely talented, but you could tell she was talented and 
probably would be an interesting filmmaker purely from the acting work she took. Like, for, like Frances Ha, for instance, I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought it was an excellent film mm-hmm. and she was really kind of the heart and soul of that. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me that she can come out and, and certainly from a writing standpoint um, make something like Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it probably depends a little bit on that. I think, you know actors turning into auteurs is maybe not the thing that's going to happen uh i don't think that th- that would be the one difference i don't think i'm really seeing that from many of them i think maybe some of the older school ones maybe but now it's more they're making use of their contacts to put together like a good film which expresses what they want to um and certainly the ones we mentioned are doing a good job okay so annie here saw sisters brothers annie what's the verdict yeah, well, first of all, uh, Sisters Brothers is a film by Jack Odiar. Um, his previous films are Rust and Bone, Prophet, and Deepan, if anybody knows those. Um, all French films, I believe. So this is his first uh, English-speaking feature. Um, the film is starring Joaquin Phoenix uh, and John C. Reilly. They're playing the Sisters Brothers, who are two hitmen sent to kill a man named Herman Kermit Warm which I heard as a war- worm, so I'll just be calling him worm from now on. Um, he's played by Riz Ahmed, known from Nightcrawler and the HBO miniseries The Night Off. Now, uh, Mr. Worm has allegedly stolen something from the Sisters Brothers employer, the Commodore, um, who's also sent a tracker or uh, a scout, John Morris, after him, which who is played by Jake Gyllenhaal, also from Nightcrawler. Um, the story takes place during the Gold Rush, and Worm has managed to create a chemical formula that makes finding gold incredibly easy. Uh, it's that invention that then changes the character's motivations in the film as well. Um, the film is described as a dark comedy western, but I think it has much deeper tones than that. It discusses relationships. Um, it offers slightly less whitewashed image of early America. Well, not early America, but that era of America. And to some extent, it speaks of the ignorance of the profit-seeking worldview that has dominated the market since the discoveries of the natural resources. Um, I think it's fun film at times, but it's not a laugh out loud comedy for me. So that's why I wouldn't regard it as much as a comedy as it is a bit more of a drama. Maybe I enjoyed it. Um, it's not my favorite film of the year, uh, but it is pretty solid, I think. And I especially like the ending because it is a bit there's that mellowness of it, and it doesn't really follow like it is in comedy up until the end. This is it finds a kind of different tone towards the end. Yeah, I think I'd largely agree with that. Um, I I did enjoy the film a lot as I was watching it, um, with a couple of caveats I'll get to. Uh, Jack Odiard, so I've seen A Prophet and Rust and Bone. I haven't seen uh, Deepan, but again, a lot of people whose opinions I respect thought a lot of that. And he's a very visual filmmaker in that his... His shot making's great, and his films, though, though certainly for me, looked absolutely stunning. And he comes straight out of the gate with the sisters, brothers. Um, the, the the opening shot is basically them kind of a, a, attacking this ranch, this house, like in the dark, and it's kind of this deep blue, and it's just illuminated by their gunfire, and that's basically all you see, just flashes of it, and it's absolutely superbly done. Arguably, I would say visually, it never quite gets up to that level for the rest of the film. But it's still an extremely well-made film in that regard. Beyond that, he he feels like a slightly odd choice for the director of this one. And I think part of what Annie was talking about there is to do with... It it never quite finds its rhythm, I think, in terms of the tone. It It kind of lurches between comedy and slightly more 
austere topics without ever really maybe fully blending them. You know, because you've got this, like, John C. Riley is, plays one of the sisters' brothers, right? So two, two brothers with the surname Sisters, which that was confusing me a lot before I saw the film. I was it like, also, Where, where's the apostrophe? Yeah, it also <laughs> doesn't translate into any other language. So in Finnish, this is called The Brothers of Sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- the, the title maybe needed a bit of workshopping, to be perfectly honest. But um, it, it's at times it, it it feels like what it's going for is it's going for like a, a Coen Brothersy tone, mm. you know, because there's elements of absurdity in it, and you can kind of feel that with the casting of John C. Riley. He does his like every man incredulity stuff, which he does extremely well, and that works really well against the kind of you know, very earnest but, you know, good comedic timing of Joaquin Phoenix, who plays his brother. And it, in that regard, it all works very well. But it's just the tone never quite blends, because you got that, and then Riz Ahmed's character, you know, he has very grand ambitions mm-hmm. about what he wants to do with this gold he's going to get. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about societies with an absence of profit and, you know, things that you know prioritize their spiritual development and like quite grand themes and they're generally done quite well but they're almost they feel completely apart from these slightly more darkly comedic bits with the sisters brothers and it never quite blends those two bits together in my view yeah well he has good ideas but the way he's extracting the gold is also just like destroying the nature bit of a spoiler there but like it, it, it's kind of, I think it's a smart film in a way that it speaks of speaks on multiple different levels so even though it doesn't just have a kind of one level story uh, when you think of it uh, if you see more than once there's things that you can pick up and kind of stories that you can see the director writing into it and the s- screenwriter writing into it that are not explicit mm. I have to say that um, my review has to be prefaced that I saw this on a red eye plane coming back from the states so um, you know some of the beauty that you saw i didn't get to necessarily see <laughs> it was very small and it kept saying virgin atlantic but um but also you know the i i agree with you guys in the sense that um you know this was a this is an interesting pick for of i've loved rust and bone i love like i really lo- had a lot to expect from this film and you know coming in with this western um, I, there's a lot. There's a lot of great dark comedies out there that are westerns. You brought up the Coen Brothers, but then there's also things like you know my one of my favorites, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, which has this kind of two characters, you know, traveling, being searched out, and so it it you know it's, it it didn't get there um, in, in that way, and so um, I also got really sick <laughs> from watching the uh you know probably the plain food but also the you know like the cutting of the off of the arm and all those kinds of things and he does and also rust and bones about like lo- losing limbs so he seems to have some weird you know fascination with that yeah i have noticed jack odiard seems to love people losing li- spo- spoiler alert for all jack odiard's films here by the way but he seems to love people losing limbs he also seems to love shooting people in the ocean i mean this is the only way i see where like i've never seen a director so dead to get to an ocean shot quite <laughs> frankly um but it, I, it's a good film it is a good film it just it never quite bl- blends it but given that it is quite ambitious in that regard I, i'm kind of willing to forgive it a little bit because it has good you know if you look at kind of the thematic elements about you know who riz ahmed's character kind of is meant to represent and who he ropes in to help him which 
ultimately it's kind of you know I, I think it's probably not too much as what i say this doesn't really go according to plan right mm-hmm. but his ultimate undoing there's a certain irony about how that happens based on who he needs to help him achieve it so it's got a lot of good ideas and i think it executes them largely pretty well the acting's very good it looks really quite beautiful in places it just it never it just never quite hangs together um from scene to scene in terms of tone you don't get a consistency from it and i don't think that lack of consistency is deliberate is the other thing because if it was deliberate and it was meant to throw you off balance that's one thing but i do think it is trying to aim for a consistent thing that's just not quite managing to do that so under the silver lake we're going to review that now and jim's going to do the review take it away jim yeah, so um, so Under the Silver Lake, it screened at the Glasgow Film Festival. I didn't have a chance to catch it there, but it is now, uh, as we broadcast, available on movie, uh, and it'll be available there until the 19th of April. It has been getting a few screenings in places. I know it was on the Glasgow Film Theatre, so it will probably pop up a little bit here and there, but certainly it's available online um, as we speak. And basically, it is set in Los Angeles, another film set in Los Angeles, um, and it's kind of a, it's going for a sort of neo-noir feel, and it follows Andrew Garfield playing a kind of, you know, down-and-out slacker type, basically, called Sam, um, who spends his days, you know, sitting around, not really doing much, spying on his female neighbours in very leady fashion, um... And one day he comes across and notices uh, this woman, Sarah, played by Riley Keough, who I think I last saw in The House That Jack Built. So she's been in some interesting films recently, shall we say. Um, but basically, the next morning, so he makes a connection with her, and the next morning she disappears. So he goes on this quest across Los Angeles, unraveling kind of ridiculous clues and, you know, conspiracy theories and trying to, trying to find out what happened to this woman. Um and it it doesn't really work for me, to be honest. Um, it's directed by David Robert Mitchell, who has done two films before, The Myth of the American Sleepover, and then his breakout thing was It Follows, a horror film from about two or three years ago, which uh, was really excellently done, made a lot of waves, and it does feel like this is the film he's been allowed to make because that was so successful. Um it's it's go is there's a lot going on here and it does not blend as well as it should it really doesn't it it spends a lot of its runtime basically framing him as this kind of misogynistic nutbag effectively and he is i mean you know it makes and it makes very clear that that's meant to be the perspective of the character not the film but it wants to have its cake and eat it it it's trying to paying homage to things whilst trying to pastiche them it's also trying to highlight um you know the way hollywood chews up women and spits them out whilst to a certain extent it kind of does the very same thing in the film um and it it's not very subtle about it there's one scene where you know he's chasing down this lead and the people he's talking to stop leaning on the gravestone that they're leaning on it's got hitchcock written across it i mean and it's got this very bernard herman style score it's really going for these la noirs you know and even modern ones like la confidential and things like that but also you know like billy wilder's films and things like that it's really going for that sort of tone but then come the end of it it kind of undermines itself and it doesn't really say a huge amount um i think it's worth seeing um to make your own mind up about it because i think to say it's divisive would probably be um you know putting it mildly 
but for me it didn't quite work and i just kind of had this vision of hitchcock spinning in that grave that you see uh to be perfectly honest um I'd say Andrew Garfield's very good. Uh, and it's not an easy performance because it is not a likable character, nor is he meant to be. But he does pull it off very well. And you certainly say engage with the story, but it's more just the number of eye rolls that you have as that story progresses, I think, um, makes it a ignoble failure for me, I would say. But, yeah, check out yourself, I would say. <laughs> Interesting you mentioned that, though, with the um, Los Angeles sort of homage. Uh, did you see the trailer for the new quentin tarantino film because that seems to be a theme coming up i i haven't actually it, it's been all over my uh, social media for a couple of days i did see the poster <laughs> the poster is absolutely dreadful so i certainly hope the trailer is better than the poster but um yeah yeah i i'm always a little suspicious of this because it always gets a little bit close to hollywood self-love i mean I'll, I'll reserve judgment until i've seen it but it's just you know hollywood celebrating hollywood it does well you don't me... like the oscars so same same difference right? I, I, hey i'm i'm nothing if not consistent well i mean they tend to make those films and then they tend to get nominated for the oscars they love films about hollywood la confidential is a great example you Mm. know so last week amanda ventured out to the film house to interview the chair of the edinburgh film guild jim dunnigan and cinetopia is planning a new program there in the upcoming months and we'll be chatting about that later on in the meantime here's the interview Okay, so I'm here with Jim Dunnigan, the chair of the Edinburgh Film Guild. Uh, Thank you so much for being with me today. Pleasure. So, Jim, tell me about the history of the Edinburgh Film Guild. Edinburgh Film Guild, I would imagine back in Edinburgh, 1929, uh, a group of cinephiles who were in love with cinema and wanted to see cinema from everywhere, all over the world, not just what was in the commercial circuits at that time. So it was felt that uh, under the influence of Two, two events. One was the foundation of uh, the Glasgow Film Society uh, a year prior to Edinburgh and the foundation of the London Film Society uh, two years prior to Edinburgh. And it was felt that if Glasgow and London can have uh, a film society, then Edinburgh is deserving one uh, also. Um, so that was 1929 when the, when the, the, the Guild was conceived. And that makes us at the age of 90, the oldest continuously running film society in the world. Wow. Which is quite a prestigious thing to be, I think, yes. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the, then I assume the London Film Society and the Glasgow Film Society have since gone? Long since. Yeah. They, they were both gone by the time the Second World War broke out. Wow. Uh, so are there any other rivals in terms of other film societies that are known? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> But what do you think it is about Edinburgh that has kept a society, film society around for so long? Well, Edinburgh, I mean, go, go, going back to the, the Enlightenment, I suppose, Edinburgh has always been a cultural city. Uh, and as, uh, as Lenin said, cinema is the most important art. So you know, following Lenin, we, we agreed with, with that statement. And, uh, and it was it, it just had something which I think the original founders just felt had to be done. Uh, and uh, to bring access to to, to the, the best of world cinema that was available at that time. So, what were you showing at the Edinburgh? Well, you, but what were they showing at the Edinburgh Film Guild early on? Oh, just, uh, Soviet cinema was much favoured, as you, as you could imagine, at that period in the late twenties and so on. Uh, a lot of Soviet cinema. Uh, a lot of documentaries were, were were being screened by by the Guild then as well. 
I mean, perhaps not surprising that uh, one of the founders was, of course, John Grierson, um, great documentarist. So you wouldn't you expect documentaries to, to feature quite strongly uh, in that. Uh, Japanese cinema. Uh, we have some very rare screenings of, of films were held were held in Edinburgh in, the, in that period. Uh, of course, European cinema, Weimar culture was 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 very important. Uh, films by Pabst and uh, Kleiner and so on. We brought them all to Edinburgh. Um, where were films screened back then? Back then, well, the Guild, one of the Guild has always been quite fortunate, and it's always had its own premises. Um, but the peak years of the Guild uh, in sort of Second World War, immediate post-war period, were that was, these were the big years when the Guild had a membership of around 4,000 people. Uh, so we had screenings in our own uh, little cinema, which at that time was over on the south side. Uh, but the, the big screenings on Sunday evenings were always held in the Cali Cinema, just, just 200 yards down the road from where we are now. It's now, sadly... Uh, a J.D. Weatherspoon's public house. Um, but if you want to get a, a flavour of what cinema was like in in the 1920s, 1930s, just pop into the and see what it, see what the, the Weatherspoons have done to you. You get that sense of a picture palace. Uh, really, very very impressive. Uh, so the Guild held their, their main screenings uh, in in the Cali. Uh, after the Second World War, the Guild then moved into newer premises over in. Randolph Place, just at the edge of the new town, and that was the home of the Guild until we moved into this building in the so well, 25 years ago. The Edinburgh Film Guild has had a lot of, um, or has been really instrumental in starting a few really important um, film institutions in Edinburgh, correct? Well, I think it could be said that uh, you know the Guild is the as the as the parent of of art house cinema in in Edinburgh, um, out of the guild, and and the people involved with the guild, it was it was a it must have been a really exciting time when you had n- names like John Grierson, Forsyth Hardy, uh, and others running or- this organisation, and uh, this gave rise to a demand for. I hesitate to say non-commercial cinema, but commercial cinema that was out with the mainstream. Um, And the first art house cinema would have been the Cameo up at Toll Cross, um, run by Jim Poole. Uh, A huge influence on uh, the introduction of subtitled films into into Edinburgh. Uh, And then uh, many years after Jim Poole set up the Cameo, uh, along came the Guild's idea to... uh, invest in this building, 88 Lothian Road, and that was done by the sale of the premises I mentioned earlier at Randolph Place. That was sold. Uh, the capital that was raised from that, that sale went into the, the foundation of Film House as we, as we, know, it, as we know it today. A long story there. Uh, 1947, post-war optimism, brotherhood of man, art bringing the world together. This was the idea that uh, gave rise to the Edinburgh International, Fest- Film Fe- International Festival. But sadly, they had no place for film. Uh, and the Guild, of course, as you can imagine, was outraged by this and said, well, if they can set up an international festival, we can set up an international film festival. And that is what we did in 19- 1947, 1948. 
And they're coming up on an anniversary too, or no? They are indeed, yes. Uh, uh, and recently, one of the screenings we had at the Guild, was terrific screening, was the very first film that was ever shown at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, a French documentary called Farabeek, which is, I have to say this, because when I saw Farabeek for the first time, I was absolutely astonished by this film. Yeah. I would say it's probably one of the most beautiful documentaries I have ever seen. Wow. Well, we'll have to add that to our list. You will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so what is the Film Guild like today? Film Guild today is, uh, is, I have to say, a fraction of the size it was in the glory days. But that's only to be expected, given that the whole nature of, of the film world has changed. I would say that the role of the Guild today is, uh, and we like to think we're quite successful in this, is to show films that you will not see anywhere else. Uh, and of course, this was the function of art house cinema, say, 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, the nature of film distribution being what it is, art house cinema is a much riskier financial prospect than it was then, uh, given the outfits like Cineworld and Omni now show a lot of the, the crossover art house stuff, which used to bring in money to places like Film House. Well, that, that audience is now fragmented and diluted. Uh, Certain titles are being shown everywhere, where formerly they may have only been shown in, in the one art house. So that makes it a much riskier proposition. So I would like to say that the Guild is now in, in the situation that Film House was in 20 years ago. We were able to take risks, uh, show films that you won't see anywhere else, and, uh, and hopefully we'll guarantee our audience for another 90 years into the future. And how many films... We have a programme of approximately 100 films a year uh, over the the spring term and winter term. We we shut down over the summer. Uh, We do need a break. (laughs) (laughs) We need a little bit of a break. But average is about 100 films uh, a year. Uh, And who decides the programme? Well, we have a programme committee in the Guild, Mm -hmm. uh, which is all very democratic, but... uh, uh, as the chair of the guild, I sometimes say, no, over my dead body, I'm not showing that. <laughs> uh, but that, that very, very rarely happens, and usually it's quite, usually it's quite amicable, uh, unlike uh, the British cabinet at the moment. <laughs> um, do you, uh, so how long have you been involved with the guild? I got involved with the guild uh, about 1980, mm-hmm. 79, 80, uh, and uh, there it was. I mean, at that time I, was running, I, I worked in a school, Portobello High School, uh, which had a very successful film society, which I have to say was there before I arrived at, uh, at Portobello High. Uh, and as we uh, as we developed uh, links with other, other film societies, I just liked what the Guild was doing. So then I said, well, I'll join the Guild as well. Yeah, that takes up two nights a week now. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, rest is, the rest is history. Here I am still, 2019, still here. Uh, Elevated to the chair for my sins. That's, that's it. <laughs> and you teach uh, at the Edinburgh University as no, well, right? I now, do, I yes. Uh-huh, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I do two two classes. Just to keep, now that I'm a, an old retired gent, uh, two classes a, a term just to keep my hand in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what, why do you think um, Edinburgh has all these film places and is it is a place that sort of Oh, I, think there's, I, think, I think there's a number of reasons, you know, you know even going back to the Enlightenment of the 18th century, Edinburgh has always been a, 
a, a hive of cultural activity, whether it be literature, painting, uh, whatever. Uh, and that has continued into the 20th century. And I think there's that, that whole cultural background. Uh, and on top of that, of course, there's a university town uh, with several universities then. You'd expect that there would be a demand for the kind of product that, that we are trying to bring out into the public. Why do you like um, being part of a guild, being watching films, and you know, why do you think that matters? You know, there's all these discussions of Netflix versus, uh, you know, the cinematic experience. Well, I mean, Netflix. A lot of good stuff on Netflix, and I, and I, I wouldn't decry what they're doing, but I think, I think. The Netflix direction is the future of cinema. Um, I think there, w there will always be a demand for what is increasingly becoming niche cinema. Uh, and if you look at uh, sales, Blu-ray sales in particular, what you'll find is that mainstream uh, sales are plummeting. But it's the the, the niche market, the you know the, the, the cinephiles market, like. Eureka, Masters of Cinema, Criterion Collection. These uh, these companies are not just successful, but they're actually growing. Uh, and so you're always going to have that that that, that split. But uh, as good as Netflix is, uh, I I don't think there's any substitute for sitting in the dark with an audience, seeing a film much bigger than your television set. Uh, and no matter how big your TV is, it's never going to replace that. So you always have that niche market, but I think it will get smaller. Uh, the age of streaming is upon us. So you mentioned that um, you know Edinburgh Film Society was one of a few that started, and that there were many over the years in different cities. Why do you think uh, the UK? Can you talk a little bit about the history of the film society movement and why? And and I'm also just curious if you think. You know, it's something that you think will always be around. And the answer to that question, yes, I think it will always be around in in, in some form. Um, nothing like the scale of uh, that it was in the 60s and 70s, which were probably the peak, reels, peak years of the film society movement. But we still have the British Federation of Film Societies, and there's film societies cropping up in, in all kinds of peculiar places. Uh, and the other trend that's quite interesting today is the, the amount of cinemas that are being restored, you know, uh, down at Campbelltown, over at Bowness with the Hippodrome, and hopefully the George and Portobello, uh, being turned into sort of community hubs, not just for film, but for other things as well, uh, and that that is a really interesting development. You know that that demand is still is still still there. And if you look at particular the 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 Hippodrome in Bowness, now hosting uh, an, an internationally acclaimed silent film festival and doing so very successfully, uh, and uh, that, that kind of thing quite, quite excites me. That there's, there's always going to be that demand for proper cinema in proper conditions, sitting in the dark and seeing the light. Why do you love it? Why do you love what you ah, do? That's a good question. Well, I suppose it have to, has to be said, the reason I'm here talking to you now as chair of the Edinburgh Film Guild, I would have to say that's, that, that's all due to my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was a, a cinema nut. He loved going to the cinema. He would go three, four times a week, and he loved westerns. And 
what better thing for a granddad to do than to take his grandson to see westerns? Uh, and but my grandfather was a particularly uh, distinctive character. He he was uh, one thing about uh, my grandfather was he had this complete and utter uh, contempt for authority of any form whatsoever. And my family were Catholic, apart from my grandfather, who was a complete godless Bolshevik type of man. And uh, if my mother had known what he was saying to me in the cinema, she would never have let me go because I still have vivid memories of sitting beside my, my granddad in the, the, the Rex cinema in Dundee watching a cowboy film. You know, you've got your Cura, your choke ice or whatever, you're having a great time, and your granddad leans over to you and he says, Hey, this is better than the chapel, eh? <laughs> Uh, and as a wee boy, there was only one answer to that question. So it's all his fault. Uh, he gave me this uh, this love of westerns, which in turn gave me a love of American history, which in turn led me to... The, it was probably due to all of that that I ended up doing American history at university. Uh, so from these sit- sittings in the, in the wrecks with my, my granddad in Dundee. And I always, I always had a, a, a love of history as well. And... And historical films, I thought, you look back and you see them now and you think, oh, these sword and sandal epics, you think. Well, they were actually historical bunk, but they gave me that interest in history, which led me to, to the academic study of history. And for that, I will always be grateful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Having 90 years here, you guys have an amazing archive We of... do indeed, yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the that. Archive, uh, it's the archive, the room next to the one we're sitting in at the moment, but this is an archive of... The heart of the archive is a wall full of filing cabinets packed tightly with film stills going back to the foundation of the Guild. It's uh, uh, For many, many years, the BFI were desperate to get their hands on Would you not like to deposit with us? No, it stays in Edinburgh. It stays at 88 Lothian Road. That's, that's its home. If it goes to any, if it goes anywhere, it will be to the Edinburgh University Special Collections, which may well one happen happen one day. Um, but it's a it's a treasure trove for scholars. We have uh, trade journals going back to the you know the early nineteen thirties. We have fan magazines. We have the stills, as I say. We have books. It's a it's a veritable treasure trove, uh, and. Uh, uh, because it's locked away in 88 Lothian Road, we would really like to see it getting out there and being used more mm-hmm. by by film scholars. So there is a lot of treasure to be to be mined. I mean, to this, even as we speak today, uh, it's still not being thoroughly catalogued. So we could be sitting on something that has been lost and forgotten about, and we have it, but we don't know yet because it's not been properly properly I mean, archived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're we're at the moment in kind of partnership with with the university special collections, and jointly we've launched a, a lottery bid to get financing to, to digitise the archive and get it, you know, get the three archives: Film House, Film Festival, and the Guilds together in one collection. Uh, so that that's all dependent on lottery money, but we keep plugging away at that. So hopefully one day that archive will be out there in the public domain. That's wonderful. And a lot of interesting people have come through the Film Guild, right? <laughs> that's, that's for sure, yes. Hi. Uh, my my favourite uh, story of interesting people coming to the Film Guild was the year John Houston uh, uh, attended the film festival. Uh, of course, Houston, as you know, much larger than life character, insisted on attending the opening ceremony of the International Festival. Uh, and uh, he 
insisted, you know, I'm prodigious Hollywood director, I should be there and everything. And then you found out it was a religious service. <laughs> wasn't wasn't interested after that. <laughs> uh, but yes, there's, we've had Gene Kelly was here. Wow. Uh, um, but uh, one particularly affecting story, I think, something that would probably never happen today, was the the year that uh, Douglas Sirk was honoured with a retrospective and uh, and he was invited to come to Edinburgh to, to accompany that respect. Sirk was so honoured by this that he insisted on paying his own way. That's amazing. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening today? Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, he said, no, no, I'll book the hotel. It's, it's all on me. You know, he was just so honoured to have that. I think that's, a, that's, that's one of the loveliest stories to come out of the history of, of the festival. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. It was really so, wonderful my pleasure. to come back my and pleasure. learn a little bit about yes. Edinburgh mm-hmm. and the history of the Film Guild. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. And we also talked to Nina Schulter about the upcoming and imminent launch of this year's Independence Festival. And for, for those who haven't been to it before, what's the, what's the general idea of the festival? Can you say the ideas that, that underpin what you're, what you're trying to achieve as a so you could say that our motto is um, films are for everyone. We're trying to bring international Scottish short films, independent films to a broader audience in non or unusual cinema rooms. So we're basically converting or uh, rebuild, um, setting up sort of pop-up cinemas in uh, community centers, etc. And... Um, create community spaces where people can come and watch films and hopefully people who would rather be uh, too shy to approach, you know, these highbrow cultural institutes like Arthouse Cinema because we know it sometimes can has this kind of flair that where people think, oh, I know nothing about film. So what is it about these um, spaces? Because I think, I, I think you're right in that Arthouse Cinemas in particular can be quite a intimidating atmosphere for somebody who doesn't feel like they maybe have something to bring to the conversation so what is it about these non-cinema spaces that you then convert that you think is more inviting what what, what sort of barrier do you think it breaks down the is uh, well i mean they all do really but i suppose pilgrim st paul's church is one of the, the key ones and I was just wondering, how do you use it to find um, these sort of pop-up and community groups to work with? Is that is that a difficult process, or do you find there's a lot of them you just need to choose what you feel like is the correct one for the screening you're looking at? It is a mix of what is um, the potential partner's own mission, what what so what what are, what is their goal, and of of course, what's the facility like? Is it um feasible to put up a screen in there is the is the sound good is can we can we get a screen and a decent picture up there of course but as in case with the Pilrick St Paul we were lucky as far as um that the Leaf Community Cinema is there that's their home like there's a feeling like there's a feeling of community there as opposed Linda to Linda McGill is a wonderful woman and um it's just that there Spirit and the spirit of the Leaf Community Cinema exactly matches what we want to do, and they've been hosting us for four years now. I think <laughs> we keep coming back. The space is great. 
this huge community hall and on the stage. Yeah, no, it's interesting to say. I think you're you're probably right there. There's maybe a, a sort of sense of community that's a, a little bit lost apart from these kind of specific events where they they pop up. Um, so one thing that I also want to ask you about is um, a set of the shorts that I've I've already seen for Independence. Um, you're doing an evening of Iranian short films. Now you've mentioned the idea of like cinema should be for everyone, and obviously the, the audience is one part of that. But what is it on the the other side in terms of the filmmakers that is that part of the reason that you've chosen to screen some Iranian? short films, apart from the fact that they're obviously very good short films, but why that country focus in particular? Really sort of spaces where people would sit next to each other in a very closed, dark space and it, people would talk, people would uh, go in and out during the film and it wasn't at all this kind of high as if you're in an opera house um, and enjoying this high culture Thing. And don't get me wrong, I love it. I love going to to um, the film house. I think it's a great place. Um, yet we hope to bring back this sort of more traditional is probably the wrong word, but we're trying to make it a bit more communicative, a bit more down to earth. Like there's a feeling, like there's a feeling of community there. Yeah, people can where people people feel unafraid to talk about their things. Um, there is very few screenings. Um, one of them is, for example, the cameo when they do their horror night, and it's so fantastic when you sit next to all these other horror fans and they talk back to the screen, and it's completely dynamic. That is what I sometimes miss in film. Yeah, no, it, 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 the festival, the festival itself, um, the, the, the theme behind it of independence um, and dependency on on each other. What do you think that um, brings to Edinburgh audiences, I suppose? Because I think that, it, for me, it, it seems to span all kind of cultures, really, because you get a lot of festivals in Edinburgh which, for, for better or worse, have a very specific country focus or a very specific um, language focus. Would you say that what makes Undependence a little bit different is the universality of what it's trying to bring to Edinburgh audiences, or would you find something different? Screening fees. That's that's the like the big the one thing we're, we're a bit upset about being on a low budget, and um, the film also I think it, it fits it fits as a closing film or premiere film, um, but um, it fits because this topic is so relatable. We all have these fancy electronic items at home. At least one of them, every one of us has. And if it's not your pretty MacBook, it's it will be an iPhone or it will be a Samsung whatnot or a tablet. So we're kind of all, as the film says, complicit in this thing. It's similar as with our clothes. If you buy H&M clothes, you got to know it's been colored by under horrible circumstances in some factory in in Asia somewhere. Yeah, well, if anything, it's probably a slightly more hidden thing because obviously your mm -hmm. clothing still has a label on it which says made in Bangladesh or made in China or That's true. something like that. You know, whereas your electronics don't always, you know, the Apple ones that you usually got, you know, designed by Apple in California that misses out for our certain detail. Um, so the festival, the festival itself, 
the, the theme behind it of um, underpendence and dependency on on each other. What do you think that um, brings to Edinburgh audiences? I suppose because I think that it, it, for me it it seems to span all kind of cultures really because you get a lot of festivals in Edinburgh which for for better or worse have a very specific country focus or a very specific um, language focus. Would you say that what makes Underbends a little bit different is the universality of what it's trying to bring to Edinburgh audiences or would you find something different? Yeah, that that is the that is one thing I think where we're special. We have not decided to do a a festival on a single language or culture or country. Also, there is, I think, almost every culture is represented with a film festival in Edinburgh, which is great about Edinburgh. But, you know, if you come and want to do just another one, what would be the point? What would you say is the the future of the festival? How do you find the festival landscape in Edinburgh as an organiser of one as opposed to an attendee? We're careful with our opinion on the Scottish independence at the time, because as with the EU referendum, I think a lot of misinformation was around. I certainly at the time didn't feel fit to have a proper judgment on a country's future that's not my home country. But we both felt that this pure independence that people try to um, sell you, that doesn't exist, even if Scotland were to be independent and even if the UK is going to be independent from the EU we never are there's trade agreements there is all these things that 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 you always need to negotiate with your neighbors whether you're a single person whether you're a country and so independence is asking questions of um, about, about relationships and that's I think a theme that just hadn't been it's difficult it's difficult yeah the cultural yeah, scene. I, I, I think it's um, from what I can see the way the, the way the programming is done. It, it that spirit that you spoke about that kind of energizes people. I think it's captured it in a very a very progressive way. I'm I'm right in saying that because a lot of festivals take a approach where it's you know pay what you can afford. I know a lot of festivals that do that, and I think a lot of very wonderful festivals that do that. But I think something that's maybe important for folk to know about independences. I'm right in saying that basically there's a, a charitable donation included as part of the, the ticket cost, which you've tried to keep as low as possible, but because you're going through a citizen ticket, I believe it is, that there is a, a, a charity aspect to the tickets that are bought. We would like to have a bit more of an impact in the community. This year, year we've started to get to engage with charities about that fight homelessness. So the festival starts on the 4th of April and one of the things you've got there is you have a uh, a 48-hour filmmaking competition that's going on as part of that first evening. Is that correct? ...people to know about the festival. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm right in saying that because a lot of festivals take a approach where it's, you know, pay what you can afford. I know a lot of festivals that do that and I think a lot of very wonderful festivals that do that, but I think something that's really important to know about independences. I'm right in saying that basically there's a, a charitable donation included as part of the, the ticket cost, which you try to keep as low as possible, but because you're going through 
citizen ticket, I believe it is. There is a, a charity aspect to the tickets that are bought. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll, wrap, I'll maybe ask you a final question just to mm. uh, seal off, and then I'll record a little bit of a, you know, thank you for joining us. Um, and then I'll leave it there. I think I might follow up with some text ones, if that's okay with you, uh, for the take one interview. But I think we've got some. I think we've got some good stuff there. I think that should okay. get people into the festival and what's going on. Um, yeah. So I'm still nervous here. <laughs> Never done that before. Um, no, no, it's good. I'll, I'll, yeah. Yeah, and the closing night is on the 7th of April where you've got the, the screening of that. There's a short film programme as well and then obviously the closing feature that we spoke about. So am I right to say people can go to the Independence website to get tickets for all of these events? The, uh, a 48-hour filmmaking competition that's going on as part of that first evening, is that correct? Um, yes, the Dogma Edinburgh is a group of filmmakers um, they call themselves, um, well, they come from the, the... Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Nina. Uh, best of luck with the festival, and I'm sure that plenty of the team here and also our listeners will see you there. It's a topic and a style. So there's been a lot of uh, commentary recently in the newspapers about Netflix and Spielberg's recent comments there about uh, recommending people should vote for Green Book for the Oscar because it took place in a cinema as opposed to Roma, which was on Netflix. So, guys, this controversy has really been bubbling up. What do you think? So, th th my views on this have kind of evolved as I've been looking at this debate. Because um, initially, I think because I prefer to see films in a cinema, I was very, you know, oh, things should have theatrical distribution, and, you know, been quite forthright about it. But I I've kind of come to the opinion that... The, the theatrical environment is worth preserving. I think that, and I, I don't know many people who would necessarily disagree with that. However, I am coming to the conclusion that it needs to evolve or die. Um, and there are some very outdated views about what makes something cinematic. Uh, you know, it's a word that gets bandied around a lot, particularly in film criticism. It'll be, to, you know, something cinematic. And I think that, that that term has been getting devalued a little bit over time. Um, and personally, I think if if Spielberg did in fact say, you know, a vote for Green Book is a vote for cinema itself, basically contrasting it with Roma, then, you know, I, I respect the man because he's made some of my favourite films of all time and he's clearly a you know, incredible legend of directing. But that statement is complete and utter nonsense, to be perfectly honest. The idea, anybody who's watched Green Book... Which, which I now have compared to the last show, uh, as opposed to Roma. The idea that Green Book is more cinematic and more deserving of accol the accolades of cinema by virtue of its primary distribution mechanism is completely ridiculous. Um, so there needs to be a little bit of ground given on both sides. The question is, what interests do Netflix have in showing things theatrically if they're going to continue to fund new productions? See, the problem is is that I, I agree with you, Jim, in the sense that uh, 
Roma is way more cinematic and, and and should have been looked at the merits of the content of the film and the way it was filmed and whatnot. Um, but the chances of being able to see Roma were, you know, in the theater were significantly um, diminished by Netflix themselves. And, um, you know, like didn't and, and actually a lot of opportunities, for example, would be the Scottish film, um, the King. What was that? The. The Outlaw King, you know, there, I, I talked to some you know, exhibitors who were not allowed to show it, and they said that they would have completely filled their theater, um, you know, having having seen that. So um, I think that people should have the opportunity to see films in the theater if they want to. And I was fortunate to get to see, we both saw Roma, Annie and I, um, in the theater, and I probably would not have enjoyed it as much if I had seen it on a screen on the way um, to or from the states, um, but also as as an exhibitor, like my exhibitor hat, it's like you know, please, you know, you've got to keep this industry going. This it matters. It's it's really important. My filmmaker hat says, um, you know, a lot of those f films that I want to make would not, you know, and and Netflix is supporting filmmakers, specifically documentaries. They're providing a space for that for production to be made. Um, in there, uh, in fact, one of one of my former teachers just uh, made a film, American Factory, that um, did really well at Sundance, and they got three million dollars by Netflix from that. That they would have never seen that before. So, I there's there's this thing where I think Netflix maybe needs to think about um, maybe compromising a little bit, you know, to to make the exhibitors and theatrical you know releases a little bit uh, happier. I mean, I think net Netflix can benefit from. Certainly, film festival and theatrical releases of its films. I, I mean, one that stand, one that actually comes to mind is because uh, basically everybody talks about Netflix in this debate, but there are other ones there. Um, you know, for instance, the, the, the film that we just spoke about, in fact, Under the Silver Lake. I mean, it's, it's gone around the film festivals, but it's ultimately going to be largely available on movie. And then you've got other studios that have a slightly different uh, approach to the theatrical distribution, like uh, Amazon and, you know, because they did uh, You Were Never Really Here, Manchester by the Sea, various things like that. So there needs to be some sort of incentive for Netflix. But the main thing is people not wanting to go to the cinema has been devalued by cinema chains themselves. And I'm not pointing the finger at smaller independent ones. I think generally they're doing a very good job. And but then you look at multiplex chains and, you know, there's a point that, okay, some of these films, by going on Netflix, you lose the opportunity to see them in the theatre. But quite frankly, if you look at a lot of the multiplex programming, they don't program these things anyway. They put on, you know, Captain Marvel or like whatever the blockbuster is of the week and they put it on like 20 times a day across five screens. So I'd argue that really, yes, it maybe reduces the chance of seeing in the theatre, but... If you look at the amount of screens, there wasn't really a very high chance of seeing it in a theatre anyway. Um, so there, there needs to be a bit of compromise and less protectionism. Like the, the decision by Picture Houses recently, um, so they have decided, in line with Cineworld, in fact, like, so ultimately own them, that they require a 16-week theatrical window, uh, you know, where the film can only be seen in theatres. Now, obviously, that rules out... Uh, quite a lot of Netflix things because Netflix don't really have an interest in putting stuff out exclusively for that long but more importantly and this kind of goes to illustrate the point I've just made it does it for a lot of independent or smaller budget films as well because a lot of independent film in the UK is released uh, day and date now you know so it comes out on streaming 
at the same time that it comes out in theatres. And I'm basically thinking of Curzon Artificial Eye and uh, Curzon On Demand. And there's a lot of films uh, which have an audience in Britain, uh, certainly from like the art house going crowd. So things like uh, The Souvenir, Girl, Loro, At Eternity's Gate, all these films which have been popped up and people would want to see. According to that policy now, they will not get shown at picture house cinemas. Um, so, you know, the cameo here in Edinburgh, some of the other ones that I know, there's a bunch in London, Cambridge Arts Picture House, all these places where it's basically one of the main cinemas that offer that type of programming, they've completely shot themselves in the foot. And it, it's kind of this protectionist attitude. It's like, oh, well, you know, if it's a if it's a streaming house that owns it, then we can't possibly do that. We need to protect cinema. But with the actions they're going through at the moment, they are not protecting cinema. They're damaging it. They're restricting the amount that can be seen. And I'm not pretending the streaming services are innocent in this. They're far from that. But the attitude to them at the moment I find very, very odd. Very odd. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the response of when, you know, music streaming became a thing. And we kind of know how that's ended up. (laughs) Do you think that's going to drive Netflix into making their own theatres, theatre chain, and then just releasing their films through that? Or do, would they be buying like a theatre chain that's struggling and, and starting to show films through that? I mean, well, I think that there, I, I think there has been discussion by people who are in part of Netflix on how we can change the theatrical distribution system. So you have these like monthly buy cards and like, you know, I think Cineworld has that and, and, and stuff. And they tried that in the States for a bit where, um, you know, you could see three films, but not all the multiplexes were on board and it sort of failed. Um, it it is about price sometimes too. You know, can you take seven kids to see you know a film? Um, you know, the, there's some nice. There are some theaters that are bringing down their price. I View is a great example. I go there all the time um, because it's cheap. Um, so uh, th- you know, those are those are sort of the things that maybe could help evolve the theatrical distribution to let it happen. Yeah, I, I, I think. Well, the thing is, there are little schemes here and there that kind of fly under the radar. And actually, I'm going to come back to the example of movie because. So I, I joined Mubi in order to watch Under the Silver Lake, right? So you, you know, Bad choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, unfortunately, there are plenty of other ones that would have been better. But, you know, it, but if you're a Picture House member, you get a longer a longer trial, actually. You get three months, so that's something that's quite useful for people to know. But what's quite interesting about it is by signing up to Mubi, you get access to uh, an app, Mubi Go. And basically every week, you get a free cinema ticket. Um, and they choose the film every week. So the the week before I watched Under the Silver Lake, it was Border, uh, which has done very well at a whole bunch of film festivals and was showing a few places. It was showing at the film house here. Under the Silver Lake, um, I think at the time I watched it, the only place it was screened in Scotland was Glasgow Film Theatre, so you need to be in Glasgow. But it came as part of that subscription. So if I'd been in Glasgow, I didn't need to watch it at home on you know my TV or laptop. I could have gone to Glasgow Film Theatre to watch it at no extra cost. And I think it's schemes like that that are the things that need to be embraced. But as long as they're trying to kind of protect the protect it by excluding these sort of films, I don't think it's going to get anywhere. And like Netflix is the biggest name because that's where most of the money is, right? I don't think like movies not even on remotely the same scale. But schemes like that, there just needs to be a little bit more out-of-the-box thinking, and I think we could come to an arrangement of that sort, where it's beneficial for Netflix and these studios, because they get the buzz, they get the word of mouth, it's going to get subscribers signed up, and there's still, you know, I mean, there's a whole raft of content on Netflix, they don't need everything to be purely exclusive from the start, 
but the fact of the matter is that it needs to be incentivized for them they are a business and like you know they're not going to do it for the good of cinema but i think there are things that would improve their business that you could get them sold on yeah i think they need the theatrical release for some of their films just in order to get the accolades to get the awards but i think sean baker said that as well he um he's a director of tangerine and uh florida project so he's talking about issues of poverty and not being included in in stuff but like and he was called out because he had said on twitter told everyone to go watch roma in a cinema and a lot of his followers said hey we don't have a cinema that shows roma and we can't afford to go because like obviously this day and day you need a disposable income to go to cinema which is a bit ridiculous whereby you can just have one netflix account and then the rest of your family can use it so it's basically just peanuts that you're paying but he said that maybe Netflix should introduce something like a $2, I think that's a bit too low, but a $2 um, fee. And if you pay that in on top of your sub- subscription, you get to see films on theatres as well. I'm not sure if that's going to work, though. I don't think Netflix will do that. And I don't think that would cover exactly. I don't know how Mubi does it. How, how do they financially, how are they able to give those free tickets to people? I, it's a good question. I don't know in terms of the, how what the finances would need to be to make that work. I don't know, but just when you take a look around, I think like the sort of thing you you've spoken about there, that's the sort of thing where if they try and work with Netflix as a distributor, as a producer of these works, as opposed to a competitor in the exhibition space. I think this is the sort of thing that could uh, could arrive. Because, I mean, we, we could spitball this all day. I'm sure we could come up with a million ideas. But, unfortunately, I, I don't know what the books look like at Netflix and elsewhere. So I don't really know what would actually fly. I just find it hard to believe, when you look at all the various other ways that media forms have been disrupted by the internet over the past 15 years, I find it hard to believe that there couldn't be something that allows these films to be seen in cinemas and also allows people who don't live next door to the sort of cinema that would program it to see it. And it's going to require a little bit more humility on the part... In my view, anyway, and I say my view's been evolving, right? So this could change next week again. But based on some of the responses I'm seeing and actions, not just words like that picture houses uh, move, it's going to require a little bit more humility on the part of quite a lot of the large theatre chains. Because um, the fact of the matter is they don't have the clout that I think they did a while ago, and it's going to require a little bit of flexibility from them, and I'm not seeing that at the moment. Yeah, I think some like what we're saying is a lot of this is about access. Like You're not going to be able to see films at a multiplex that you can see on Netflix. But what bothers me about Netflix a bit and all the streaming platforms is that back in the day, Netflix, which was originally a DVD rental sort of send in the mail kind of thing which was brilliant you could see anything and everything and now they're slowly taking those things off and you know you're only allowed to see netflix productions you know i read something the other day where i heard that netflix is you know borrowing tons and tons of money to make these productions and they're only relying on these um subscriptions you know are they going to be able to sustain this kind of uh, business going forward well, no, but I mean, I think probably part of their business model is probably a bankrupt cable television in the United States. Um, you know, so do that and then they can, you know, jack up the prices. In terms of their overall strategy, I can only imagine, really, to be honest with you, cinema is probably a tiny, tiny bit of it. And this is maybe why it's not really progressed that far in terms of, you know, working the, these things out. Because 
the, like the likes of us in this room, I think like we've got some sort of investment in seeing films in the cinema. And I think a lot of people maybe enjoy going to the cinema to see something on a big screen, but I, it's maybe not quite as crucial for them to see something on a big screen. And I think Netflix is exploiting that at the moment. And I, I don't mean that in a you know pejorative sense. I think that makes perfect sense for them to do that, but that's ultimately what they're doing. Yeah, and the the youth of today are used to watching everything on YouTube, so it's the small screen is the future. And I think... That's a personal opinion. Steven Spielberg should just fucking retire because <laughs> he's been on for too long. And the the latest films he's done, like Ready Player One, I just you know get off the field. Let other people do what they want to do. Yeah, and well, the the post was okay. The post was okay, but quite frankly, anybody who who made the post, and I, I feel bad saying this, right? Because you know it's Spielberg. He's made some brilliant films, but anybody talking about the you know how cinematic something is when they look at the post and vote for Green Book, I like no, I'm sorry. That, that, I, really, is that the hill you're going to die on for this argument, Green Book? I, you know, it kind of undermines itself in that regard when you're up against Roma versus that. But you know, it is what it is. Okay, so. Uh... We've got some announcements for forthcoming events in April, and uh, we're starting off with the launch of Ibero Dogs, the Ibero American Documentary Film Festival is in its sixth edition, and it opens soon. And the Edinburgh Short Film Festival is programming some Spanish-language shorts there on May the 5th. There's also 23 feature documentaries, live music and parties, with no less than 20 events. So Ibero Dogs runs from 11th of April to May the 19th at venues in Edinburgh and Glasgow, so keep an eye out for that fairly soon. Um, Annie, what about tell us a little bit about Cinematopia's documentary strand, which yeah. is opening soon. So we are launching a new documentary strand, um, well, just dedicated to documentaries entirely. Um, that's going to be, the first one we're going to have is on the April 8th, that's Monday at 7pm. And it's going to be in Edinburgh Film Guild space um, in 88 Lothian Road, uh, right next to Screen 3 in Filmhouse. Um, we are screening Faces Places by Agnes Varda and JR. And we have a local Agnes Varda professional <laughs> coming to talk to us, um, François Giraud. And he'll do a little intro and then we'll do a bit of um, discussion afterwards. And it's a strand where we bring in documentaries that we like and that spring up discussions. And we talk about documentaries specifically. And this one we also talk about women in, in film and women documentary makers since seems to be that is the easier way for, for, for women to do film. It's documentary. Um, but yeah, do show up. We're going to be launching it soon on our website, on our social media. The tickets will be on sale soon. Uh, keep an eye on that. That's going to be a monthly strand. So, uh, yeah. Sounds great. We'll keep watching that space. Uh, Scalarama is a UK-wide film event that runs in September, and the Scalarama Edinburgh team are gearing up for the planning of that. I think there's a meeting uh, fairly imminent. Uh, Amanda, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, if you've ever wanted to uh, put on your own event, film event on um, there, uh, you know, like this is Scalarama is the really good time to do it. Um, I know uh, Paul and uh, has done it with a short film festival and Cinetopia has definitely done it. So um, we're running a bunch of uh, workshops and events where we... Um, where we talk about the th logistics of things that you need to deal with. So tonight, exactly, um, the, uh, at Refinery, we'll be doing our first one um, at 6.30. And uh, we're going to be talking about venues. Uh, venues can be kind of a challenge in Edinburgh um, and licensing. So those are the, that's the first one. Um, so come and, uh, and we'll take it from there. 
Great. Well, that's about the size of it for the March edition of Cinetopia. Thanks um, to our guests, Jim Dunnigan and Nina Schuldhauer, for joining us. And thanks also to Nina Halton for curating the music throughout the show. We look forward to catching back up next month and we'll be reviewing more films and talking to more local film industry people. The Cinetopia Radio Show is produced by Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia and RPP Productions, and hosted by Paul Bruce, director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One Magazine, the UK-based film magazine, and, and none other than Annie Askakainen, co-founder of <laughs> Cinetopia. Someday you'll get it, Paul, someday. One day I'll get that right. Music curated by Nina Halton. For more information about Cinetopia and her partners, go to cinetopiashow.com or follow us on social media at Cinetopia Show. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.